Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Kate Evans. She is the author of eight books, including Call It Wonder, an odyssey of love, sex, spirit, and travel, winner of the Bisexual Book Award for Best Memoir, which is the prequel to Wanderland, Living the Traveling Life. Her essays, stories, and poems have appeared widely in such publications as HuffPost, Women's Day, Good Housekeeping, Ziziva, and Santa Monica Review. A recipient of a PhD in education from the University of Washington, she also holds an MFA in creative writing from San Jose State University, where she is emeritus faculty. She lives half the year in Mexico, and the other half she travels. Welcome, Kate. Hi, Ronit. Thank you so much for being here, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about Wonderland. Sure. Well, as you mentioned in the bio, it's basically the second in a duet of memoirs. And the first, Call It Wonder, really deals with the pull that I've always had to travel and to live an unconventional life. And then 10 years ago, my husband and I retired early and left Santa Cruz, California, where we've been living Uh, to live nomadically, basically to live home free. And then we discovered house-sitting, which is where we take care of other people's homes and pets. And I thought I'd, when I started writing Wanderland, that I was really writing a book about house-sitting, which is this odd and wonderful experience of living someone else's life. But then soon I realized I was really writing about this age-old question, what is home? And so I would say that Wanderland is, you know, it's, it's really a kind of a meditation on what is home when you live a nomadic existence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess I don't want you to give away any spoilers, but what are some of the, the ideas and themes that resulted from your pondering this without giving me like the answer, but what are some of the revelations you've had about this? Yeah, well, I've had um, a lot, and I wouldn't say I've even landed on one at this point, although by the end of the book, I do sort of meditate a little bit more on really what it means for me by the time I finished writing the book. But um, so it's funny because my husband says home is wherever his toothbrush is. I kind of wish I could have that attitude and <laughs> not complicate things. But there is some truth to that, you know, wherever, wherever we are, you know. And, and in some ways, it's also wherever he is because we are this, you know, team doing this together. And um, that's part of it for me. Another part of it is really, um, it's really a state of mind. You know, um, home is, again, I mean, I just coming, keep coming back to where it's wherever I am, but I can be in my home. We actually do have a house now, which is part of the... Is that in Mexico? Mm-hmm. It's in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So this is another part of the book is what is it like to live as an expat? But I can feel, quote, not at home even when I'm in my own home. So I do think being at home is a sense of ease. I think it's... Um, and, and when I get... So really thinking about it, you know, that's really an inside job. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So at some level, I think for me, home is also really that that still place inside. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I, I feel a lot of that. I think that's some of what I explored in my short story collection and this idea of where home is, especially when you may not have ever had one or one that you could envision as being ideal. And so home kind of transforms for me. And I, I think about it a lot, too. So I appreciate it and appreciate that theme. And I was wondering also, did you know that you were going to have a prequel to like, did you know when you were writing the first book, uh, Call It Wonder, that there was going to be a second one? Like, when did you realize, oh, these are connected? I wouldn't say I knew when I was writing Call It Wonder that Wonderland would, would be coming. But I did know we were living a uh, a life that's very interesting to a lot of people. So I did assume as we continued to do it that at some point I probably would write about it. And I think um, that probably happened four or five years ago. I actually write about it in Wonderland in this scene where we are doing a house sit in Northern California and I write about sitting down to write. And that was actually writing Wonderland, uh, the beginnings of Wonderland itself. Mm-hmm. You've written so many books, and I was wondering if you can zoom out for a second and talk a little bit about your writing process and how it's changed over the years. I'm always intrigued by this question because I know we develop and grow as people and as writers, and some things, in my experience, don't ever get much easier, and some things do. And so I'm curious, you know, what's changed over the years that you can notice, and what has grown? what have you grown more confident about? Isn't it funny how we have to keep relearning these really important things that we learn? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, it's funny because I do think that there's a link between the title of the book, Wonderland, and my own writing process. I'm kind of a wandering writer, right? I, I throw a bunch of paint at the canvas, and I hope that patterns will emerge from the chaos. And, you know, even with academic writing that I've done, I used to write that way. I'd take this wild array of notes and underline and annotate all my books. And um, I even do that with um, pretty much with anything I've write, I'm writing, but I started out as an academic writer. So I would, I would do that and then um, sit down with this kind of hurricane of stuff and try to begin to see connections and patterns and meaning. And I think what's changed over the years is that I have more faith in the human mind, um, that we can't help but create meaning. Because I've done it so many times, right? I'm always facing this chaos. And then um, I think I just have a tiny bit more faith in that blank white page, you know, that something will emerge. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily easier. I think that, you know, each, each time you start each project, you, you face that, for me, I face that same feeling of, Oh, you know, almost like a pan. Oh, is, is this blank white page? <laughs> are there words that are going to appear here? But you know, it's so funny. I, at mentioning this, I'd forgotten about this. I remember when I was a girl writing in my journal, and I would open up to a fresh page, and I'd be filled with that wonder of, oh my gosh, after I sit down here for 20 minutes, there are going to be words covering this page that I don't know right now what they're going to be. So I've always just loved that sense of discovery that comes with writing because I don't think of writing as transcribing what already exists in my mind or even in my experience because as a memoirist, you know, we have all this experience we're going to write about, but it doesn't mean that we're literally just saying, okay, here's what happened, I'm going to write it down, right? We make so many discoveries as we're going about what all of this really means in terms of the human 
Mm-hmm. And so then what is your editing process like? If, if you are allowing yourself to throw this, you know, splatter the paint or just enjoy the process of filling up the page, what is your editing timeline like generally? Or is that too too organized of a like an ask for you like I don't want to push you into an uncomfortable place what's your agenda wanderer (laughs) you know as a writer when when you actually have to take the stuff that we create and you know form it so that maybe the reader gets a sense of what we're trying to show them quicker than you know we do when we're putting it out on the page right so how is that for you and do you have trusted readers or do you let your work breathe before you come back how how do you approach it all, both of those for sure. Um, I, I really do think a lot of writing is rewriting. And I love that experience, actually. I mean, the, the throwing it out on the page, sometimes I get to the point where I'm almost sweating, right? It's just, it just feels like it's so intense. And then the, the sort of reworking it, the, the pulling out the patterns, the rearranging, the shuffling, the adding, the deleting, all of that, um, is definitely a bigger part of the process for me, for sure. And I always, I have a lot of people involved in my process of writing. Um, I have trusted readers. Well, the first person I always read aloud to is my husband. I read him what I'm writing. And he is not a writer, but he's a big reader. And he has a real ear for certain things. And he asks great questions, and he'll say, oh, He'll ask big questions, but he'll also say, you just said that word in the previous, use that very word in the previous sentence. I said, oh, I did, you know? Um, so he's the first one, and then I, you know, we work it some more. And then um, I have trusted friends. I also have used beta readers quite a bit. So it's, you know, it's certainly, as you mentioned, every, everything you mentioned and more. In fact, this connects to another thing that I think is really important for me as a writer, and the more I reflect on it, always has been. And that is, you know, we have this image in the movies of a writer, you know, shutting themselves in a room for a month and, you know, typing away and all these pages flying out, and then suddenly it's a manuscript, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) From my understanding, I understand Steinbeck was kind of that way, that for him, he did a lot of work in his head before he put the words down on the page. And I've actually been to the Steinbeck Museum and seen his manuscripts and they're just, there's hardly any crossouts and it's like all perfect handwriting and everything. So we're all different, Um, but you know, and I definitely know that a lot of writing and pre-writing and editing does happen in the mind, but for me certainly more so on the page. And I have done in the last few years actually some really interesting things for example, I co-wrote a book with a friend. It was an, it came in between uh, Call It Wonder and Wonderland, and it's a, a novel, actually uh, a love story set in uh, revolutionary France that I co-wrote with a friend, and I just had this really great experience of being excited for her pages to come and then and sending her my pages, and we'd give each other this feedback, and we had this ongoing loop going on. We worked together for probably about a year and a half, and um, that to me was such a great experience. I liked getting the immediate feedback and having a sense of, okay, that helps me to know where I'm going or what else I can massage and work on. And then also, I just want to just mention along these lines, when I wrote Wonderland, 
I had a friend, um, my friend Kathleen, the writer Kathleen Miller, who is a memoirist, but she was working on her first novel, and I knew she was working on it, struggling with it, and I said, hey, why don't we send each other five to ten pages every Friday? And so we did that for a year, and that is how I came out with my first draft of, of Wanderland, and that's how she completed her first draft of it. Oh, yeah, so the, the gift of deadlines and accountability. Mm-hmm. And immediate feedback, and also in a way, for me, having um, in mind a person that I want to keep involved and excited and intrigued by what I'm writing helps a lot with, my, with the juice of it and helps a lot with my voice. Mm. Oh, interesting. So it informs your voice as well. For sure. Wow. I would imagine, too, when you were talking about co-writing that novel, that you can really feel the momentum because you're not the only one propelling it, right? So you get these pages back and you see where they've taken the story and you see the story building and, and coming into being that much more vitally, I feel like, if you're, if you're working that way. Beautifully put. Absolutely. It felt that way very much. And it also felt that way, I mean, the, the idea of the momentum and the vitality when I was sending my pages, even though we were working on separate projects, to my friend Kathy. Um, so, yeah, vitality, momentum, I love that. That's something I often tell the writers that I work with is that you can't, that momentum is extremely important. And, you know, even just writing and not using writing as punishment, like, okay, I've got to sit down and I've got to write these pages, you know, I don't, I don't like that. But I do think that writing a little bit every day does help establish momentum. Mm. Before we get to that excerpt that I wanted you to share, I was thinking about having a partner, a life partner as editor or first reader. Is, does that ever get complicated? No, I'm laughing because it did with my previous life partner, who was also a writer. And, um, there were a lot of difficulties around that. And I think it had something to do with our relationship, not just about the writing itself. Whereas with Dave, my husband, he's amazing, honestly. So one time when I was actually working on Call It Wonder, I I was with some friends and we were all working on projects together. And Dave and I were doing a house sit in Tahoe. And so we'd invited some friends over, and we were all just reading our pages to each other. Well, I had read aloud some pages from Call It Wonder. Dave was there, too. And I had read aloud some pages from Call It Wonder that, had, that featured my sex life, having sex with several different people before I met Dave, and just some other kind of edgy stuff. Afterwards, my friend Kathy said to Dave, does it bother you to <laughs> hear this, to be part of this, to you know, be responding to these pages that have to do with the sex life that Kate had that doesn't involve you. And he said, listen, he said, everybody has a past. And he said, and I'm so proud of her for writing and being a writer and making something meaningful uh, for others to read. So that was his response, and that's truly who he is. I don't know if it has to do with the fact that he's not a writer and there's no competition <laughs> involved, or, I, I, but I do think it's more the psychology of the fact that he, he honors his own past and honors my own past as something that brought us together, ultimately. I really like that. That's a, that's a really generous and 
I don't know, I feel like progressive way to approach that. And I think I think that has a lot to do with who he is. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out if I think it has a lot to do with him not being a writer. That's interesting. It's an interesting question. But I think that you're. it's really lucky and great that you have a partner like that. Do you want to set up that excerpt and then read it? Okay. So in this excerpt that you've asked me to read... Um, Dave and I had been living in China. I actually, so we were a few years of living this wandering life when I got this opportunity to teach creative writing actually at a university in China. So there are several chapters in the book about that experience. And then we were really close to Southeast Asia at this place we were in in China. So we spent also a lot of time traveling around there. And eventually I developed and ran a writing workshop in Thailand at a place called the Sanctuary, which is this isolated spot on a Thai island. After months of planning and prepping, there we were, riders together, having journeyed on airplanes, trains, taxis, and boats to converge in this rarefied corner of the world. My longtime friend and super supporter Nancy came in from LA and a couple of her friends. Others arrived from the States and Australia and a few from the island. It was a different season than the last time we'd been there, hotter, muggier, more mosquitoes, and I worried the magical bubble had been burst when everyone who'd reserved the unique treehouse-style rooms switched to the less elegant ones for the air conditioning. To get to our gathering place, we had to traipse up a steep terraced hillside laced with stairs in the clammy air, and people arrived wild-eyed, wet clothes clinging to their bodies. But soon we fell under the spell of writing and sharing our stories, And, as happens at the best retreats, summer camps, and sometimes sitting next to a stranger on a five-hour flight, we quickly bonded as intimates, got laughing and spilling tears. Afternoons, we swam in the warm bay, ate from the sanctuary's bounteous menu, had spa treatments, napped in hammocks. The last evening, one participant, participant, Romy, an Australian writer and therapist who lived on the island, led us through a labyrinth constructed with stones, a meditative experience and a chance to reflect on what the week had meant to us. Again, I was reminded how teaching, even in such privileged and exquisite circumstances, consumes me in both senses of the term. It's fascinating, and it eats me up. Dave and I knew I'd be exhausted when the workshop was over, and so we'd planned to spend our final two weeks in Asia alone in Phuket, the country's largest island in the Andaman Sea. When we weren't sweating in the sauna, followed by the cold plunge, or playing ping-pong in the hotel's basement, We devoted our days to exploring the island by motorbike. I'd spent my adult life echoing my mother's sentiments about motorcycles, so dangerous you need a suit of armor to ride one. Her first job as a nurse had been in the ER, and she pointedly told stories about the meat-grinding horror of motorcycle accident victims. Dave, on the other hand, grew up flying around on motorcycles and dirt bikes like many boys in rural North California. Ever since we met, I told him I'd never get on one, and I preferred he not either. What changed my mind? Thailand and Indonesia. I went from no fucking way to, all right, I'll try it. Soon I was finding excuses for us to hop on and drive around, my arms encircling Dave's body as he steered us here and there. My job is to settle into the sweet spot between alert and relaxed, a baby monkey clinging yet surrendering. One night, after dinner of a whole fresh fish and cashew rice, Dave mounted the motorbike and I slipped on behind him. My head encased in a pink helmet, I thought, astronaut. 
Instead of steering us to our hotel, Dave spontaneously turned up a hill for a night jaunt, going nowhere for no reason. He sped in the dark, climbing up and up, the ocean and indigo satin sheet rippling below, lights from the city dotting the skyline like stars. I held on, my heart pressed into his back. My skin was sun-tight from a day at the beach. The night air was thick with humidity, deepening the sensation of being in another atmosphere, encased in an intimate pod. The day arrived that it was time to leave Thailand. We'd spent nearly a year and a half in Asia, and this departure felt seminal. I left a splinter from my heart there, assuring myself I'd return someday. 24 hours of traveling, and we touched down in the States, in Hawaii, soon arriving at the Lanakai waterfront home of our friend Candace. I dropped my bag and hugged her petite frame, my fatigue so profound I felt I could melt into the floor. Instead, she drew us out to her backyard, facing an expanse of aquamarine bay. Let's get in, she enthusiastically lifted her shirt over her head. I looked over to Dave. Smiling, we began to disrobe, and all three of us plunged into the Pacific's warm waters in our most natural state. Thank you. There is this uh, gentle, almost serene quality to your voice in lots of the book, and, and even though you're traveling so much and there's so much movement and change, I'm curious how much of the time you felt serene or, you know, calm while you were living it. Do you want a percentage? <laughs> I'm teasing. Well, I don't know. You know, that's a hard question to answer because I just feel like I'm living life, right? I mean, there's clearly something in me that thrives on change and movement, right? Otherwise, I wouldn't be living this life. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, like everyone, I mean, I'm always juggling the two extremes of life, you know, the beauty and awe along with, what, the fear of motorcycles and mosquitoes and fatigue, <laughs> right? I mean, and actually the scene right after this uh, talks about some fatigue I had. We were staying at our friend Candace's house, and she was having this big party, and I got sick. And so I think, you know, living as travelers and expats means putting myself outside my comfort zone constantly, right? And there's something I love about that, or I wouldn't be doing it, but there's also... Um, like drawbacks to that clearly. You know, both of my memoirs have, for example, major medical issues in them. Um, I, I had two major medical issues happen in my 50s. And I also deal with claustrophobia. I have a couple scenes in Wonderland where I freak out about situations. <laughs> I have a panic attack at one point. Dave and I have a big fight, you know. I also write in Wonderland about how over the years I've listened to a lot of Dharma talks and done a lot of yoga and meditated and read soul expansion books galore. And, you know, maybe it's a lot of work, but it's, as I say in the book, it's less taxing than believing every destructive thought I have, right? So I think there's part of me that works to accept all that life throws at me. And I do try to lean into the better feeling side of the, of the dichotomies. When you think about it, for me, fear and excitement. So fear, think about how that feels in the body, and excitement, how that feels in the body. They actually feel kind of similar in the body. Mm. And so if I'm feeling, you know, if I'm paying attention to that, I can kind of lean into the one that feels a little bit better. Like, oh, maybe I'm a little more excited than I am fearful at this moment. Um, so, you know, I, I guess... 
you know, this question is making me realize that I think one of the things I'm working with in both of those books, both of my memoirs, is how I work with a lot of these teachings from all these different spiritual teachers, how I work with them in my daily life. And when I do work with them, it provides a certain serenity that I would not have otherwise. Mm -hmm. I mean, for sure, before, you know, in my teens and my 20s, as I write about a lot and call it wonder, you know, I had a lot of anxiety and a lot of coping, negative coping skills uh, that just didn't necessarily serve me. So, and in fact, you know, Call It Wonder, the title Call It Wonder comes from that quote by Osho, who, by the way, at the time I did not know is is a cult figure. <laughs> There's another interview for this season where we talk about Osho, who is also Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who was the guru my mom followed. And so funny how he's popping his head up this season. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Of course, I knew that from your memoir, but I'd completely not made that connection until this moment. Well, so even bad people can say some helpful things. Yes, of course. And he said... Don't call it uncertainty, call it wonder. And that's how I got the title. On page 81, you write, I don't know if you have that excerpt around. It's a really short one. The, the sensation recalled Michael Singer's words. Did you see that one? Sure. This was actually when we were at a, um, a music event, and it was just this beautiful experience we were having with a bunch of our friends. So the sensation that I was feeling at the time recalled Michael Singer's words in his remarkable book, The Untethered Soul. Quote, he wrote, you're sitting on a planet spinning around in the middle of absolutely nowhere. You're floating in empty space in a universe that goes on forever. If you have to be here, at least be happy and enjoy the experience. You're going to die anyway. Why shouldn't you be happy? Yeah. And, you know, there are so many quotes throughout your book, uh, so many resources, actually, that can calm and offer support, you know, as a, as a growth-minded person reading it, you can take a lot, not just your story, you can take a lot away from it. And the image, this image that you, you relate here resonated with me and I thought, wow, it's so true. And I found myself thinking a few things, including how, one, this is also a way to feel empowered about writing. This idea that we're not here forever so why not follow your heart and your creativity if, if you're feeling like you want to? And then two, and I'm hoping you can reflect on part or all of this that I say now, the realistic managing of sadness or worry. For example, part of what we tap into as writers is where we're sad and frustrated and where we struggle, you know, trauma, et cetera. So I'm wondering how as a, as a person, as a writer, you balance the need to let go of worry, feelings of discontent, et cetera, with the, the truth of your lived experience and what you might draw from for writing? God, I love this question. I really do. It reminds me of a funny piece uh, the travel writer Tim Cahill wrote called Hold the Enlightenment. And he writes about, he, worry, he writes about how he worries that enlightenment will ruin him as a writer. And so, you know, there's this tendency in, in memoir, of course, in all writing, to milk the difficulties, right? And to rely on traction, right? So mm -hmm. if I'm letting go of worry or feelings of discomfort, whatever will I write about, right? <laughs> I mean, I would say I never fully let go, right? I mean, I, oh, let, me, let me back up. I think there's a difference between how I live and what I write on the page, for sure, right? So... When I'm when I'm writing something, you know, writing something traumatic, writing something difficult, um, I think 
you know, I really have to dig in. Of course, I want the writer to feel those feelings. For sh- I mean, the reader to feel those feelings. But I think as a, as a person, you know, I, I actually don't fully let go of those things, for sure. Otherwise, I couldn't write about them. But it's more like I integrate it all, you know, into this big, messy, crazy thing called life. And I, I think for me, it's more about not obsessing over the negative. I can write about it, but I'm not necessarily obsessing about it. And I think that's, again, my subject in part, is how I grapple with all of this. You know, I mean, I'm far from enlightened, but I do like writing about how I use what I've learned from spiritual teachers in my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You do integrate it in a way that's very uh, digestible. Like I can assimilate it while I'm reading and I think, oh, wow. And also another thing which I really wanted to uh, mention is I love how you include the work of other authors in your book. So you'll mention occasionally, it's not, you know, it's not like a a blog about books, of course, but you'll mention as you go through what you're reading or what you learn from a writer, and it's a really generous thing to do. Oh, thank you. But well, books are so important in my life, and they always have been. I mean, Mm -hmm. books have changed my life. Mm -hmm. So it's it's an an intractable, intractable part of who I am. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about this retreat that you were going to start getting into some last advice and, and books that you'd want to recommend. But before that, I'd love to learn about this retreat you're, you're co-hosting. Sure. So it's uh, actually there's a connection between how I've been writing these days, how I mentioned I've been working with other people and so forth, and developing retreats because I think bringing together people to write for inspiration and connection and accountability in a kind of a luxurious respite is, is a really great way to, um, to reinvigorate yourself as a writer. And so this one is taking place in Baja, California Sur. It's about only about 25 minutes south of where I live in Baja Sur. It's about 15 minutes north of Cabo San Lucas, and it's in this gorgeous retreat center. And together, um, as I mentioned, we'll generate ideas and home craft. And I'm um, doing this retreat with my co-host, Angela Yarber, who is actually the publisher of Wonderland. She has a, yeah, so she has a, a new imprint called T-Home Center Publishing, which focuses on publishing queer writers and um, feminists and what she calls revolutionary women. And um, so I was the first book in her imprint. So she and I are doing this together, right? And so um, it won't only be about the generating ideas and honing crafts, but also getting an opportunity to talk to her about marketing work and um, getting work ready for publication and possibly even publishing through T-Home Center. So that's what we're doing. And um, it's taking place in April of 2024. We are offering two scholarships, one for 90% off the whole price of the retreat and one for 50% off. And if you're interested in applying for those, the deadline is October 23rd. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to definitely include that in the show notes, that information um, and the links for that. So listeners can go check that out. That's exciting. I've never done one of those, but I, I see memoir writing teachers and coaches talk about them and they do sound restorative and generative and just beautiful so ooh, exciting so what books would you recommend to writers working on their memoirs what books meant a lot to you or have helped your work 
Yeah, I, um, you know, one of my favorite memoirs, and this might sound out of left field, but is, is written by Julia Child. It's called My Life in France. And in it, she has such a zest for life. It's a real adventure of a book, you know, with food and drink and travel and writing and friends. And there's so much passion in the book. I think it's a really great example of the way, of a way to write a really engaging, wonderful book that is not necessarily centered on trauma. Not that there's anything wrong with that, and they can be wonderful, but I just, I just adore that book. Another couple of other books that I really love, oh, you know what I did recently in the last few months was I read all six of Maya Angelou's autobiographies in a row. Oh, wow. And um, I actually bought this big fat book. I love big fat books. This big fat book that contains all six books. Oh, wow. Oh, it was such a great experience. I mean, first of all, she's lived an incredible life. But she shows you, as, a re as I was reading it, I was just saying, wow, look at how she crafted these stories to just keep me wanting to turn the page after page after page. Mm -hmm. um, I also think, you know, within the last year, I read the, I read the Narrative Life of Frederick Douglass, which is a total masterpiece. I had read excerpts of it over my life and had actually taught excerpts in some of my courses, but I'd never read the whole book. And it's, it's an amazing example of uh, storytelling uh, it's just incredible. The last one I want to recommend is um, a more contemporary book. It's called The Land of Lost Borders, A Journey on the Silk Road by Kate Harris. It's just an example of gorgeous travel writing. Mm, thank you. Okay, great. And then what are some last words of advice you would like to share with writers working on their memoirs? I think one of the most important things that I say to the writers that I work with is to use books as your teachers. All genres, books you love, books that are beautifully written, and read them not only as a reader, but as a writer. So any questions you have about how do I develop this character, how do I not use cliche, how do I you know, get somebody to want to turn the page, how do I write a whole chapter and have it come to a close, Ask those questions of the books that you love, mm -hmm. and look at them. Look at them carefully. So again, you're reading them not as a reader but as a writer. Books are your teachers, and I do that all the time. If I'm struggling with something that I'm working on, I go back to a book that I think is really great, and it will teach me what it is that I need to know in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is uh, just you know find a writing partner or a group. Go to writing retreats. Uh, go to conferences, you know, I think, as I mentioned, to finish a book, momentum is really crucial. And I think having other people involved in your process really helps a lot with momentum. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And where can people find you? Best place to find me is at my website, kateevanswriter.com. And from there, you can get to my blog, my author Facebook page, and my Instagram. And you can also find out information about the retreat there as well. Oh, okay, good. I was just going to ask that. So that won't be a separate link then. They can just go to your stuff, right? Yes, yes. Okay, that's a good idea. Okay, thank you so much for sharing this time with me and for talking about your new book and the writing life and your perspective on growth and sharing our writing. I really had a great time. Thank you so much, Ronit, and thank you for this wonderful podcast. I listen to every episode. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. 
That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here. 